Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallup. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sitkus. Together, we host the Silver Screen Savers podcast. And today, what are we talking about? Oh, that's right. We're talking about Damien Chazelle. Woo! It's a very special episode here, for me at least. Maybe not for you guys. <laughs> Damien Chazelle is one of the most thrilling exhilarating writers and directors out there i i love it every time he comes out we're going to be talking about all of his feature films leading up to our review of babylon the wackiest craziest over three hour absolute epic of a show business saga that made no money and has been very mixed so i cannot wait to talk about that let's talk a little bit about damien first he has just been a knockout for me every single time he is so often dealing with people characters who are trying to achieve supremely in their film right most often artists although in the case of first man right neil armstrong an engineer an astronaut and they're usually suffering some crisis of personhood having to sacrifice personal connections and satisfaction in their daily lives he really gets at the compelling need to, to make art, to make something that lasts and is important to people, and he knows how to do it in the most beautiful packages that you have ever seen. Are you guys fans of Damien Chazelle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, it'll be, it'll, all right, so it'll be my voice most of the episode, just, just so you people know. He, he is a guy who has a team, and this team is excellent, right? Justin Hurwitz, so I think was his classmate i don't know that but classmate from harvard they have made some of my favorite scores together justin Hurwitz is awesome tom cross his editor right he won the oscar all the way back at whiplash for editing linus sangren has been a cinematographer for the last few films him and linus sangren have certain moves they love one being shooting directly into a trumpet i noticed that a lot as i was re-watching the films and then again in babylon and it kind of takes on different meanings one that has stuck out to me on one hand it's like the majesty of the instrument right you're right up and close with this beautiful music but on the other hand you know from the distance the trumpet makes you want to dance it's this really beautiful sound but when they stick the camera right up to the bell it's, it's just like a black hole, and the noise is almost too much. It's always this balance of, particularly in Babylon, yes, art is beautiful, but it's also dangerous, and it really hurts to reach the source of the art, where the art comes from. And each of his movies just feels entirely fresh, even though they do deal with similar themes. His first one, which is kind of like his start as a student film that I think he left Harvard for a little bit to complete it, is called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, released, uh, I think premiered in Tribeca in 2009, and then released in 2010. I'm going to assume that you guys have not seen this movie. That would be a correct assumption. I watch it every day. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not a widely seen film. In fact, you kind of have to hunt for it if you want to see it. You are you can rent it on, um, I think I rented it on Vudu, or you can get it on Amazon or whatever. So it's out there. It's this black and white romantic musical about a young woman and a trumpet player who are in and out of a romantic relationship. It was made for only 60000 bucks. It is a Boston movie. Tyler, if that interests you at all, that's one of your favorite genres. We do, we do have uh, duck boat tours in this. And, you know, of course, <laughs> Giselle went to Harvard. He's right there. I like this movie a lot. It's definitely a, a mood piece in the sense that 
The story is building character and relationships, but the narrative isn't always pushing forward to the next event. You're more so following the characters as they go about their lives. Wide diversions that are pretty entertaining. There isn't a ton of expositional dialogue, so it's you might be hard to follow if you're not paying attention. It feels very much like the Safdie Brothers' first film, The Pleasure of Being Robbed. Jason Palmer and Desiree Garcia are the stars here. They're really excellent. There's one really good musical number in the park. There's a lot of great jazz music. And there's a lot of moves in here that he'll later use, particularly in La La Land, right? The fast panning between a live music performance and somebody's dancing. Again, that's the free at the first filming right into the bell of the trumpet. And the silhouette, if you guys remember from La La Land, uh, Emma Stone auditioning and she's in silhouette. And he used that here too. <laughs> I want to tell you guys about this. This stuck out to me. So there is a moment where Madeline is walking and talking with some guy, some character that maybe she's going to go out on a date with or hang out with or something. And she gets to a hairdresser on the street. And the guy's like, oh, I'll wait out here for you. And she's like, you sure it'll be about an hour? And he's like, yeah, that's cool. I'll wait. She comes out an hour later. The guy has a bag. He's like, I got cookies for us. And she's like, oh, actually, I have something to do tonight. Sorry, I can't hang out. Oh. <laughs> and the guy just has to go home after waiting an hour for this girl. And it's like, <laughs> sometimes you just wish you could step through the screen and hug somebody and i felt it for that guy in that moment he like he even got cookies guys come on but it, it's funny it's this is a first film like i would say many directors first films it has all of the dna of the movies that are to come hmm. i know After, what that's like <laughs> yes i want to hear more about that after this, he wrote some movies. He was a screenwriter for a while. He did a couple of The Last Exorcism Part Two. He did this movie, Grand Piano, where I think Elijah Wood is this pianist who has to keep playing or else he's going to be shot or killed or something like that. And also 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who did Prey this year, another really cool director. Have you guys seen that one? Yeah, I believe so. It's been a while. No. So I really like that movie, too. It's very much like um, a shelter bunker domestic drama that later turns into an alien movie, you know, because it's Cloverfield. It's really, really good. I think Giselle had the opportunity to direct this one, but he wanted to focus on directing his own script of his next film, Whiplash, which came out in 2014. This follows a jazz drummer at the Schaefer Conservatory in New York who falls under the guidance of Terrence Fletcher, an extreme conductor who pushes his musicians to dangerous extremes. He first made it into a 20-minute short film, which is mostly the beginning scene where Fletcher goes crazy. This was shot in like under three weeks, premiered at 2014 Sundance, and was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and it won three Oscars. J.K. Simmons for Best Supporting Actor, Best Editing for Tom Cross, and Best Sound Mix for Craig Mann, Ben Wilkins, and Tom Curley. And interestingly, one of the lowest grossing movies to be nominated for Best Picture only made like around $49 million, which is st still a good chunk of money, but usually they make higher than that. Uh, have you guys seen Whiplash? Do you like it? I have seen Whiplash, and I lied. I did see 10 Cloverfield Lane. I was thinking of a different film. 
Were you what? thinking of the Cloverfield Paradox? I was thinking of the Cloverfield <laughs> Paradox, yes. No, 10 Cloverfield that... Lane was the second one. Yes, or... I did see that. Yeah, I, I really, really like that one. Um, I'll tell you about Whiplash. It is phenomenal. It's positively electric. It's sharp. It's dark and brooding, but without l- ever losing any energy, there's so much momentum to it. Miles Teller is amazing. And his relentless ambition is so believable. I don't think I've ever enjoyed him more. I would say I've been pretty mixed on Miles Teller throughout his career. He's made like some some big stinkers. Um, did have a good year this year with Top Gun Maverick, but I, I I don't know if I've ever seen him better than he is in Whiplash. And J.K. Fantastic Simmons. Four. No, stop. I <laughs> I wasn't even I wasn't even gonna make the joke. J.K. Simmons who won the Oscar. He, he's he's just great. What I love about it is, like, this is a rare case that a director just lets an actor loose to be a total monster without ever being, like, an out-and-out villain. There's no, I wouldn't say there's, like, a redemptive or sympathetic arc to Fletcher, but, like, he gets, he gets a point, he gets a perspective in the movie, which I thought was really, really cool. Excuse me. Uh... You know, it's just in the beginning, even his character introduction, he's shrouded in darkness as he's watching Andrew. He's one of those people that you'll, you're you never comfortable around. There are always, like, when I was a kid, there were always, like, adult men that I was always afraid to be around because I felt like no matter what I said, they would, like, have an issue with it. Uh, can you guys relate at all, or am I on an island here? Yes, I'm Catholic. I can relate to that. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's that's good. Just one. just around being around, man. I'm not a go to beer. It it would just always happen. And Fletcher is is like that kind of person personified. He's he's so carefully manipulative and imposing. You know, just little things like he'll burst into another instructor's room, and this is already in a school, the Schaefer School, where there is a really intense male energy. He's a very fascinating character in 2022 because 2014 is certainly not an eternity away but i feel like we are much more out and kind of confronting the way that professionals treat each other especially as teachers especially as people people in positions of power and there's also an interesting debate about how hard is it how okay is it to push somebody super super hard He's a really f- wonderful foil with Andrew's father in the movie who never succeeded in his writing career, but he's like such a sweet dad. He seems happy with what he has. Like he makes, makes a point of telling his son that he loaded his pantry up with gushers. I'm like, like, how do you get a sweeter person, a sweeter father than that? And it brings us to one of the central questions, which is like, what is a good kind of life, specifically an artistic one? Is it better to build a personal sphere where you have loving friends and family, but maybe you aren't as professionally successful? Or is it better to strive to be one of the greats in your field? The awesome thing about the movie is that it doesn't present a binary answer. They explored this this year in The Fablemans. They did it in The Banshees of Inishirin recently. There is suffering and there's benefits both ways. Different people have different ambitions, and even single people change their ambitions You know, throughout their time in life. A lot of that has to do with egos, feeling superior to other people. And the other great question in the movie is, how far is too far to push somebody? Another point where the moral answer is not clear, 
you know, these intense, dangerous limits of pressure have resulted in, in beautiful art. That doesn't make it okay. You know, the movie recognizes that without endorsing it. And Andrew and Fletcher developed this really, like, toxic but symbiotic relationship that I find more and more fascinating every time I watch the movie. The cinematography by Sharon Mayer is astounding. It's all these hot lights, these manic movements. Apparently Chazelle was in a really bad car accident during the third week of shooting, uh, but he returned to finish. I, the final, it, this movie has one of the best endings that I have seen. I won't ruin it for everybody. Justin Hurwitz, incredible music. And then I'm going to read you guys a bit of a bit of trivia about a particular line in the film. This is from IMDb. So, in the scene where J.K. Simmons yells, I will F you like a pig, you may notice that the camera cuts away from him when he delivers that line. The line was actually taken from the short film. The original line was, I am going to gut you like an effing pig. Damien Chazelle thought the new line was hilarious and included it in the production script. Simmons thought it was ridiculous and refused to say that line, but Chazelle included it in the film anyway. I just find it hilarious of all the nasty, terrible things that Fletcher says in the movie. J.K. Simmons was like, no, I'm not going to say I'm going to F him like a pig. That's terrible. <laughs> I just imagine them having like this petty fight on set about this one line. <laughs> They were having this fight, and then Chazelle was like, fine, you'll wear a Mets cap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The ben Affleck Fincher. That, that has to be the most obscene thing Damien Chazelle's ever put to film, right? No, no. It's not. <laughs> right, guys? No, I... Wow. Gotta be. We're getting there. So, um, we're gonna move next to what I would say is his least offensive film, and his, his biggest hit by far, which is La La Land in 2016. It's set in Los Angeles. An actress and a jazz pianist fall in love while trying to reconcile their dreams with their lives on reality of Earth. It is tied with All About Eve and Titanic for the most Oscar noms of any film. It had 14 and it won six. Giselle won for Best Director. Emma Stone won for Best Actress. Linus Sandgren for Cinematography. Original score for Justin Hurwitz. City of Stars won Best Song. And Production Design went to David Wasco and Sandy Reynolds Wasco. I, La La Land, there is, there's nothing I can do to describe how much I love this movie. I don't want to put a number on it because I want to be purely qualitative. It is just in the highest tier of my favorite movies ever. It's rare that you verbalize to yourself when you're having a happy moment anywhere in life. But as I was in the theater watching this for the first time, at a certain point, I remember saying to myself, I'm having such a wonderful time. I need to cherish this. And I did. And I've only loved it more and more every time I've watched it. I just effuse admiration and love when I watch this movie. It's a story about two people who are on the road to their dreams. And they find heaven along the way, right? Two artists who collide and they form happiness that they didn't expect to get through this romance. And that joy comes to be at odds with the lives they've always been envisioning and striving for, right? They can't have both things at once. It's that super rare thing of meeting somebody at just the right time, but then the time isn't right anymore. And and what do you do with that? Which path do you choose after that? It's also a rare movie where I really feel like these characters are the only two people in the world. I love it when movies do this. One of my other favorites is Leaving Las Vegas. That does this with Ben and Sarah. It's a constant frustration amongst artists. The question of 
why must life get in the way of creation? But there's so much magical serendipity to everyday life. And like, there really just wouldn't be art without it. So I don't want to say it's a necessary evil, but the, the obstacles help in some ways. There's so many incredible scenes, the planetarium, the ending sequence is genius and heartbreaking. The purple hills. The only scene I've never really loved is the opening number on the freeway. Watching it this most recent time, I enjoyed it a lot more. The song's very good. There's a start of a lot of the musical motifs. But I feel like it's out of sync with the rest of the movie. Not necessarily in a bad way. The beginning is all about sunny L.A., but this movie, I think, is at its best when it's a very cool-colored, quiet, almost somber world. Linus Sangren, masterful, masterful work of color. These delicate mixtures of purple, greens, blues, and then these shocks of red. It's like, it's like this visual lullaby. It's like a dreamy gumball machine, almost. And it really comes alive at this early party scene where the world freezes for Mia. She enters some kind of fantasy realm. The music by Justin Hurwitz is a miracle. The songs by him and the team of Pasek and Paul, they're filled with such bittersweet longing. The movie's all about changing moods. It's the same sequences can elicit such different feelings. Things turn on a dime. Mia and Sebastian's, Mia and Sebastian's theme is perfect. Even Sebastian's like lame band pop song with John Legend is really cool. Emma Stone is, is the queen. I can't wait to see her in... I, maybe two Yorgos Lanthimos films are coming out this year, or maybe one is, and then one in 2024. I don't care. In La La Land, she is the queen. She's always the queen. She's funny. She's 100% believable and authentic in this. Ryan Gosling, who is one of my favorite actors, nails many of the scenes, and the piano playing is superb. He learned piano for this. I don't think this is his best dramatic role. There's something, like, slightly off. He's not bad. In fact, he's very good and totally works for the movie. I just think he's been much better in other movies, which I only mean as a compliment to him. And I want to give credit because the the line where he says, Los Angeles, they worship everything and they value nothing, apparently came from his partner, Ava Mendes. <laughs> the question of can they sing, and this is always a big question in movie musicals. There, this received a lot of criticism for the fact that Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are not world-class singers. One, I think they're good. I think in this movie, she is better than him. But I've heard him sing better in other movies. Also, I don't know about you guys. I don't need Broadway-level singing in movie musicals. In fact, I think sometimes those really highly trained voices can kind of like blend in together and can de are definitely beautiful but in movies sometimes they sound very generic at times like you know for instance like peter dinklage in cyrano he has a unique voice i think it really works for the movie jk mm. simmons has a nice little cameo in this john legend's really good too they just like it's just a applause thumbs up they did it I just love it so much. I'd love to talk more about specific parts, but perhaps another day. I My question is, and this relates to Babylon, is this his last hit? Because this was made on a 30 mil budget. It made almost $450 million. First Man, which I'll talk about next, it, it made some money, not too much. And as we have seen, Babylon is just like, Lopping harder than a dry fish out here. It like it is, like my lord, is it not making any money? Which hurts me deeply, but whatever. So I, I don't know. It, I'm so curious to see where he goes next because 
I mean, La La Land is the only one where he kind of hit it big so far as financially. But next, we have one more to talk about before Babylon. This is First Man in 2018. It's a biopic. It's a bit of a departure about Neil Armstrong and the various NASA missions that led to him stepping on the moon and equally him as a man and his family. This is written by Josh Singer, who co-wrote Spotlight, The Post. I think he's writing Maestro, the Brad Cooper, Leonard Bernstein biopic, which I think is coming out in 23. And it's based on the book by James R. Hansen, who is a writer who became friends with Neil later in his life. This was only nominated for four Oscars. The The Academy did not embrace this movie. I, I have a theory why. Many more were deserved. It was nominated for production design, sound editing, sound mix, when those were two categories, and visual effects, which is the only award it won. I'm going to list the Best Picture nominees from that year, and you guys tell me if they couldn't have slipped First Man in here. Black Panther. Sorry. What's that? I was going to say 2019. So the 2019 Oscars for the 2018 movies. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no. 2019 was a banger of a year. 2018 was not. Hmm. So Black Panther, very good. Black Klansman, very good. Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, Vice, and Green Book was the winner. Couldn't have slipped First Man in there? First Man would have been in there if they put the American flag on the moon. Just saying. Don't, <laughs> That's don't the dumbest. Get, don't even get me started. Dumbest controversy I've ever seen was people mad that the American flag on the moon wasn't shown in this movie. Also, I, I can't believe that that caused an issue. It may. I don't know. This movie also portrays Buzz Aldrin as like a world class a hole. So I. Don't... His name's Buzz. There's no one named Buzz who's a nice guy. Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Not He's in the not last one. Person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in the last one, exactly. I, I, I'm to the point, I, don't know, I almost don't even acknowledge that. That was a Buzz Lightyear. That was a weird man Buzz Lightyear. Right, but anyway, first, man, I, this movie's fantastic. I understand that many people were underwhelmed when they first saw it, and admittedly, I was a bit too when I first watched it, but two things about that. One, some of the things that make this movie seem underwhelming are what make it great. This is a movie whose central figure is a calm, cool, and collected man, which only makes sense. You have to be in control and very calculating to operate spacecrafts. Unlike many biopics, it doesn't glorify its subject. It presents Neil as a man who felt very isolated, even from the people closest to them. He sunk himself into his work. You know, it's it's at least an approximate fictional version of himself. In fact, uh, Mark and Rick Armstrong... The Sun said that it contained the most accurate versions of their mother and father. Unlike most movies, it's successful at portraying someone, someone thinking, right? Really gets into his interior life, uh, the things that they dwell on, how that affects them. And it, it does present the moon landing as a spectacular achievement, but it removes all the rock star dressings from it. And once it gets there, it's very silent you know, it, it really envelops you in the space of it. And I've always really loved it for that. This movie is not underwhelming in its simulations of space stuff at all. It's it's really wild getting in all those test crafts, crashings, fires, all this stuff. Uh, Linus Sanger's cinematography, it's whipping you all over the place. You're bursting into the air. You're getting stuck in anti-gravity. The very first scene is like Neil almost getting sucked into into the lack of Earth's gravity. It, it 
that scene scared me so badly the first time I saw it. It makes me feel like I'm on a roller coaster. And just the sound is outstanding in this movie. The score by Justin Hurwitz is one of my favorites. It fits so well in a space movie. There's something so emotional and delicate to it. Apparently, he learned to play this this instrument called a theremin because um, apparently he, he learned that Neil Armstrong loved it. I list, This is the kind of score I listen to a lot just independently on its own. Ryan Gosling is so good in this movie. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, so if you want to say I'm like in the bag for him, okay. I'm going to read you guys the list of best actor nominees from the same year. You tell me if they couldn't have slipped Ryan in here. So the winner was Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I think mm. we could have slipped Ryan in here. They could have slipped him yeah. right in. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read the rest just for fun, but yeah, we could have slipped him in there. Christian Bale for Vice. I like him in that movie. Bradley Cooper, Star is Born. I'll save that one for last. Viggo Mortensen in Green Book. And Willem Dafoe. Does anybody know the movie? Lighthouse. No. That was the next year. Oh. Yeah, you're right. At Eternity's Gate. Do you guys know what that is? I've heard of it. Don't know anything about it. So is that it the is... one where he shows dung and people were talking about how no, big it was? No, that was Antichrist. No, that's oh. Antichrist. So At Eternity's Gate is... I would say an unconventional biopic of Vincent Van Gogh. I and I'm I don't mean this to be rude at all cuz I think this movie's very good. I am about one of eight people who has <laughs> seen the movie. I watched it and I liked it a lot and Willem Dafoe is very very good in it. I'm not and he wouldn't even be the one that I would take out, but you're going to tell me you can't can't put Ryan Gosling in there. Come on, enough. Same with Claire Foy, not nominated. She is so good. And this was like her year. She had like three big movies this year. And it just seemed like the Claire Foy moment, and it just didn't happen. Uh, maybe it'll happen with Women Talking this year. Also, can, can they just release Women Talking already? It's going to be another Cyrano. It'll come Please out. It'll be no. like It'll be like May, and it'll come out. Like, just, I want to see it. Just release it. Come on. <laughs> All right, so are you guys ready? Let's get to it. We come to Damien Chazelle's latest movie, which is Babylon. Here's what it's about. In the mid to late 1920s, a number of artists attempt to attain stable careers and personal life satisfaction as Hollywood turns from silent movies into talkies, into pictures with sound, this is written and directed by Damien Chazelle. I know you guys saw this one. So, Matt, what did you think of Babylon? I liked a lot of it. But I did think it dragged in parts. And it... I'll, I did like it better than Avatar as far as three-hour movies from 2022 go. All right, all right. Uh, and I'm... Like... Or, or the Batman. It was better than the Batman. Uh, I really... I, I liked a lot more than I didn't like, but three hours this was just a bit too much of an ask for this particular movie. It didn't have me at all at every point. Um, overall, still, I think it deserves to be seen more than it has and make more money than it has because uh, there's a lot to like about it overall it wasn't perfect to me it was good not great 
Okay, so we're going to walk through the movie. When you get to the parts that did not work for you, I'd like you to point those out to me because I'm interested. Uh, Tyler, what about you? So I'm very mixed on this film. Um, there were a lot of th- things that I really enjoyed, and it had me, me for a while, and then something would happen where I'd just kind of lose it. And this movie should not have been three hours. I legitimately halfway through the movie, I like looked at my phone. I'm like, there's still an hour and a half of this movie left. Like, I don't blame... The performances were good. Um, I think Diego Calva, that's the... Yeah, yeah. Manny. I think he was phenomenal. I thought he was the best part of the film. I I loved everything Mm. about his story. Unfortunately, I just... There were parts where, like, I just was like, okay, I'm not into this. I think I really enjoyed the kind of behind-the-scenes movie stuff. It was very comedic. This, This movie had me so much and then just kept losing me more so than any movie I can think. Um... And there were just so many tonal shifts in this film. Like, it would go from, like, gross-out to, like, genuinely funny, kind of, like, feel-good stuff. And then, like, shockingly violent all of a sudden. <laughs> like, I was just like, this movie's jumping all over the place. Like, it's so paced oddly. And, like, there were parts that just dragged, like you said, Matt, where, like, I was just like, okay, I, like, let's go. Come on, move this along. So I just, I never got into a groove with this movie that kept me for that long. And I wanted to enjoy it because there were parts I really did enjoy. I I also really liked the performances. Diego Calva, of course. I really liked Margot Robbie, too, though. I thought she was fantastic in this. As, as you guys know, I will watch any Margot Robbie movie. I even watched that movie Dreamland because she was in it that nobody else saw. So Dreamland. At- yeah, Dreamland. <laughs> As you guys witnessed, I was so excited for this movie that I refused to watch any trailer. And if one played in a theater, which it did many times when you guys were there, I would look away. You would. <laughs> I can attest to that. I was a little frightened that I wouldn't like this movie. I go in. I saw it the minute that I could possibly earliest see it. And I loved it for three hours. And then... In this year where I've complained so much about movies being too long, and this one's three hours, I saw it again. And when I saw it again, I had one of the best theater experiences I've ever had in my life. I enjoyed it so much. I was with my dad. Damien went for it. He put all the Hollywood mojo that's been swirling inside his creative mind, and he crafted crafted a three-plus-hour chronicle of making movies, and really more so about living life around making movies and the highs and like really depraved consequences of that. I have not been wrapped by this movie by a movie in such a while in in a while. Excuse me. It's been playing in my head over and over. The score is on repeat in my brain. One of the things that really fascinated me amongst many is that it didn't seem like a simple love letter to making movies. Certainly the admiration is there. It's like an examination of why do we even feel like movies matter? And like how do we balance our real lives and emotions with what's on screen, right? This re- it's, it's all very mysterious. He doesn't provide definite answers in this movie, and I really love that. It's also just a complete thrill ride. There's one gigantic set piece, an amazingly done well scene, one right after the other. One of the grand ironies of the movie is that the lives of these people are so outrageous, histrionic, the question becomes, why do they need movies, which are these very artificial creations, 
to feel something real when their lives are so chaotic. It, it's such a fascinating topic. You know, another is short-lived careers, but like contrasted with the immortality of the work that's been done. I just like give it, give it every Oscar, please. Uh, maybe, maybe not every Oscar, but like, please, please, please. At, at least if this doesn't get nominated for Best Picture, I will be very sad. I hope this movie gets an Oscar nomination for every dollar it makes. It'll, it, it'll uh, deserve all three Oscar nominations. <laughs> it made like eleven million or whatever <laughs> on like a forty million dollar. Actually, I was saying that to be exaggerated because forty million's a lot. That's it's really like four hundred million or whatever. <laughs> uh, I feel like if it, it says so much about the current moment in a way because it shows that these magical moments that we witnessed right stuff that we grew up loving this false reality that we all agree to believe in the movies the magic of show business the real life circumstances behind that are so deplorable and disgusting right there's so much Mm -hmm. suffering that goes on in this movie and i'm just like wow it's it's just seemed very prescient to me this film is certainly flawed. I'm not I'm not saying that this movie is perfect and it doesn't have its issues because it does. I'm just saying I still love it and it's amazing. So let, let's first discuss the editing unless you guys have anything to add before I go on. Nope, take it away. All right, so I just, I want to ask you guys about the ensemble mosaic aspect of this. It was edited by Tom Cross, right? He's partnered with Chazelle. Some of the characters don't get as much screen time as others. Different characters in the same world, they collide, they separate. Some characters disappear for a while, and then they come back. Did that work for you guys? Was that a problem? No, it it didn't work for me, and I feel like that's where a lot of the pacing felt off. It's just because you have all these characters that it's just kind of just shifting between so frequently that like and at points you'd literally have a scene where it's cutting between them frequently and like that just i don't know some of the most of those didn't work for me i'd say for the most part the ones that i was able to follow i was vibing with but then Mm -hmm. certain ones i feel like didn't get enough screen time to make you care about them all right so i think that's a completely valid criticism i'm going to get to that uh very quickly I, what I will say about the ensemble and the disappearing and reappearing piece is that as you go later in the film, I think it was very reflective of this this theme of these people are going to come in and out of the spotlight. Their success is going to come in and out, and it just can't last, right? In a way, this movie, and I'll make this point more clearly later, this movie wasn't about any one of them. It was about the world, and they are certainly big players in that world, you know, the Dream Factory, but it wasn't about any one of them. So I did like it for that. So the movie, I would say, surrounds three major characters and a couple of other ones who are kind of their usage, I would say, is the big issue of the movie. But the three characters are Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva, Margot Robbie as Nellie Leroy and Brad Pitt as Jack Conrad. Manny is starts out as kind of like an unofficial assistant to studio executives. Nellie Leroy <laughs> is an amateur actress who has never worked in anything, but she's convinced she's a star. And Jack Conrad is like MGM's premier leading man who has command of every move that he walks into. 
So speaking of Manny being an assistant to a studio executive, I have to say I was a bit jarred by who was playing said executive. Flea? No, um, maybe, maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Who were you thinking of? Jeff Garland. Oh, yeah, Jeff Garland, too. He, he was in the mix. He wasn't screaming vagina at anyone, though, so no, that was a good wasn't, thing. he wasn't wrapping his arms around people screaming <laughs> vagina. Uh, let's talk about Manny a little bit. So, Diego Calva himself, unless you are a watcher of Narcos Mexico, I would say he's probably pretty brand new to you. He was brand new to me. Um, the interesting thing, first I'll say Diego is really excellent. Manny doesn't get a ton of interiority. We don't know much about where this character comes from. Uh, we know that he's an immigrant. We know that he doesn't really talk to his family much. But to Calva's credit, he gets a lot of really Spielbergian close-up moments where there's no dialogue and his expressions have to communicate everything that Manny is feeling. And I think he really knocked it out of the park in those moments. Uh, he, he was so good. Like in the the scene where they're making the movie on top of the hill and it's like Jack's big moment and everything comes together and like the thrill and wonder is on Manny's face. He did so well in that. It, it also reflects his relentless pursuit to rise in the industry, right? He, he has to give up his personhood so much because he is forced to do these really unsavory things, right? He's so willing to do whatever needs to be done to achieve the magic moments that they, they just seem to be his high. They seem to be his motivation, right? His, his best moments in life are related to kind of that movie magic, you know, because whenever things are going crazy in the movie and you ask, like, why would anybody do this? There are these ridiculously triumphant moments where people just kind of forget whatever crap was going on before but it's not a justification for it it doesn't say oh well all that stuff is okay because we got this shot or whatever Um, it's just kind of preventing all aspects margot robbie as nelly Leroy. originally this was supposed to be emma stone do you guys think that that would have worked with emma stone in this role i think emma stone could have pulled it off easily i don't know I, I love Emma Stone. I'm not sure she would have brought quite the same manic energy that Margot Robbie seemed to, if that makes sense. I love Emma Stone so much. I do have some trepidation about it. Matt, I kind of agree with your point. I think she has the manic comic energy. I don't know if she has the same edge that Robbie brings, if you know what I mean. I, I would yeah. say, like, she, she doesn't like the fit. So, Not I stand so. corrected. She has it. But I, I, I have some trepidation about it. I, I do love Margot Robbie in this. I don't know. I would love to jump universes and watch the film version where Emma Stone is in this. Um, but that will never happen. Unless Damien Chazelle remakes his own movie in a few years. That would be incredible. I feel like her three turns as Harley Quinn, in a way kind of led to this put some clown makeup on and i mean this is like some harley quinn type shit <laughs> okay yeah that's that's true she does have the accent especially yeah even the stuff. accent yeah yeah all right that's true that's, that's a good point even though she wasn't in it in, in well i like i like the last one but 
she wasn't in the best movies in that character, but maybe she just needed a good movie behind her to bring that same kind of a little bit crazy but captivating energy. Do you think Chazelle just took her from the Suicide Squad set, wiped the makeup off, and was like, just keep on doing what you're doing? <laughs> I could almost see that. I mean, obviously yeah. not really, but... I mean, not, she, not literally, but... <laughs> she's a stick of dynamite in this. She's really awesome, and, and there are layers to it. it. What was interesting about Nelly was that she seemed to be motivated, not because she wants to be an actress, maybe a little bit, she, but she seems to just want to prove all the people who thought that she was nothing and who doubted her, right? When she first learned that she's getting an acting job, the first thing she does is like scream into the desert about all the people who, who thought that she could never do anything. It, it gets at this kind of egotism that's involved in a lot of celebrity dreams, right? About being a star is that you know, I, sometimes the dream is less about doing the actual stuff and more about kind of the, the stardom that comes with it. And I don't think that's the totality of her character, but, but I found that interesting. You know, she never mentions anything about loving to perform and act. She does like a little I love movie stuff, but she was snorting coke at the time. So I found that very fascinating. Like most of the characters... She has no interpersonal relationships, really. She has her dad, but there's an interesting dynamic with her dad that we'll get to later. Um, and Robbie, as as manic as she is in the movie, she really uses the quiet moments to show us this very insecure person underneath this this really crazy makeup on Nelly. Uh, everyone in this film is very lonely. This is not an intimate... Well, it's intimate with its characters, but its characters are not intimate if you know what i mean except the people at the party they were getting intimate with each other that's they were yeah was the i'm gonna ask you guys this was the relationship between or wasn't even a relationship was the bond between nelly and manny believable to you was there a missing link i didn't really care for it to be honest i thought that was a weak weakest part of the film it I th i'd say it got me it it had i was invested enough I did, yeah. So I, I agree that it's certainly not the greatest two-hander that's ever been put to film. But I thought it worked for the characters. Well, I think it kind of plays into that theme you were talking about in La La Land about like meeting each other at the right time, but then it not being the right time, and always kind of wrestling with that difficulty and when things seem right and then they finally seem right and then something happens and did you did am i am i interpreting that in so I, a way I, that makes sense i like the point that what i'm gonna say is i think in la la land me and sebastian really love each other and in this movie i don't think i don't think nelly and manny ever love each other for manny and nelly if you know what i mean yeah, I get that. I didn't see La La Land, of course, so I'm I'm sort of speculating here, but No, that's a good point. I'm actually I'm going to put a pin in this because it's it's tough to talk about without getting into specific plot details, but let's talk about Brad Pitt as Jack Conrad. He is a huge star, he's beloved by everybody. He has this revolving door of wives, but like with Nelly, he he seems to only have excuse me, this one true friend who is George Munn, a producer played by Lucas Haas, who was very good in the movie. He's 
I would say he's he's either trying to commit suicide or he's like the butt of a joke in which he has a toilet seat over his head and shoulder, <laughs> which I, I, I really enjoyed. Jack is he's addicted to making movies, pleading pleasing audiences, and most of all, he loves the chaos of being on set, making deals, and really pushing forward the medium of film, which I kind of translated into Jack is always fighting for relevance. I think he always knows on some level, maybe not at the top of his brain, but somewhere that his star is constantly dimming and he's always looking for a way to keep it going so he can get that high of, of making something that people like and being a star. We are, I would say, asked to sympathize with him. He gets, I would, as opposed to the other characters most of his scenes are kind of alone, right? And, you know, he, he does kind of introduce Manny to the film world. But after that, he's just kind of by himself for so much of the movie. And even though we're asked to sympathize with him, the movie isn't glorifying of it. It shows him, us what a destructive person he is uh, and the consequence of, of that. He and Nelly really can't make the transition to to sound films. I don't. Did you guys like Pitt's performance as Jack Conrad? I mean, to me, it felt like Brad Pitt playing Brad Pitt in the twenties and thirties. Like I, I was fine with it. I like him, so it was, I thought it was fine. I thought he did well as kind of like a sleazy movie star, who's kind of like can't get out of his own way, kind of thing, like. He knows his star is going, but he's desperately hanging on. I thought he played that well. He did. Like, some of his actions are so off-putting. And what you said about Brad Pitt playing Brad Pitt in the 20s, I mean, there is the meta aspect of this, of Brad Pitt playing somebody who was on top of the world and then maybe isn't, like, the premier star anymore, which, you know, I think Brad Pitt has stayed more successful than, than Jack Conrad is in this movie, but... You know, again, it's there is the meta aspect to it. All right, so then we get two other characters who are like maybe like secondary main characters, and I think this is kind of where the big problem of the movie is. So Joanna Depo plays Sidney Palmer, who's a trumpet player. He performs with his big band at these big Hollywood events, and he eventually becomes a musician in the pictures, like a, a musician movie star. Unlike the other characters, his tribulations are like completely through the hands of external forces, right? He's, he's we see the com- consequences of Hollywood bigotry through Sydney, and he, he just re- his performance is very good. He just does not get nearly the same amount of screen time as the other three characters, which is mm-hmm. unfortunate. And so Lee Jun Lee plays Lady Feiju. Very similar. She's a cabaret singer and a struggling actress and writes inner titles for silent movies. She's most often used for entertainment at these extravagant parties and kind of like a fixer for when there are, are bad situations. Again, with these two characters, Lady Faye and Sydney, it was just like, if you have them there, there are a few scenes missing from their arcs. But you also shouldn't take them away because even though their arcs are incomplete, I think the movie is better for having them. Am I? Is that a correct assessment? 
Ab- absolutely. I do think mm-hmm. they, I agree, they did really underutilize them. Um, but I, especially in like Lady Faye, her interactions with Brad Pitt's character, Jack, are reason enough to keep them in the film, to mm-hmm. keep the character in the film. Also, honestly, I didn't like what they did to her character um, without spoiling it. And I mean, I get that that was one of the like the sleazy Hollywood things to do in the time, but the fact that it that Manny did what he did, I feel like that was kind of a weird out of character thing for him. So I I actually think that that was very facet, and we'll talk about it a little yeah. bit later. I will say I think it's fair if you make the criticism that both Sydney and Lady Faye, their characters almost just kind of seem like stock examples of when it's time to show the consequences of bigotry and racism and prejudice and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I completely understand that criticism, and yes, I I think they. You know, it's it's just ironic because they feel like they haven't got much screen time, but this movie is over three hours. We also get Jean Smart as Eleanor St. John. She's a cinematic journalist. She has a couple of really important scenes. And then, I mean, guys, I like how how are we not bowing down to Jamie Damien Chazelle when he gives us Toby Maguire as a friggin' vampire <laughs> opiate lord. <laughs> like, I, and he was perfect. He was perfect. Yeah, he was very good. <laughs> Honestly, I, I will admit for a three hour movie, that scene kind of makes it worth the, the cost of entry. Yeah, it comes in very late. Um, but I, I think it gives the movie some some needed momentum in that late hour. It, it like so like so creepy. He's so like in command, but also very childish at the same time. It was like I when was the last time he was this good? I, I, I can't think of it. He was oh my god, he blew my mind. Olivia Hamilton as Ruth Adler, who was like the director on first the silent films and then the first sound shooting. I thought she was great. Loved watching her. Would like to watch mm. her in a lot more. PJ Byrne is like the first assistant <laughs> director. He was he was uh, awesome. Yeah, that was pretty good. And we get so many great like small performances. Spike Jones as the German director. <laughs> uh, Samara Weaving. I was cracking up with Samara Weaving. <laughs> she was right across from Margot Robbie. Wait, that scenes. wasn't Emma Mackey? <laughs> so I, I get the Emma Mackey thing. I don't know if Samara Weaving and Margot Robbie look at I I can pretty easily tell the difference between the two. I never really I mean I guess one. if they're I guess if they're in the same scene together, sure. I d no, I just I never got that. Uh Eric Roberts as Nelly's dad <laughs> slash manager. I <laughs> I could just a million times when he is facing up against the snake and he's like, assume the position of a mongoose. Like, I could watch it all day long. Uh, Ethan Suckley is in this as, like, the the spitter henchman of yeah. Tobey Maguire. He's very much like the firecracker guy in, in Boogie Nights. I I would... So, this movie is... Compa- that was him. Yeah, this movie has been compared to Boogie Nights so much... And I, that was the movie that I thought about the most while watching this. People have said Wolf of Wall Street, too. I, I think it's incredibly similar to Boogie Nights. Flea is in this. 
Catherine Waterston's in this in a very good role. And Olivia Wilde appears for like three seconds in the movie and then she's just gone. Which, I love it, Giselle. Put stars in your movie for three seconds and then never show them again. This movie, it's about people who are obsessed with making movies and being stars. And they just don't have any life outside of that. Which is going to lead me right into spoilers. So spoilers for Babylon. Trust me. Go see Babylon, please, for the love of God. If you have a weak, yeah, absolutely. If you have a weak stomach, maybe don't, because... No, I mean, like, if you have a week to put aside uh, to watch this film. I would give a week to this movie. In fact, <laughs> I gave over six hours to this movie. So we get a big metaphor in the beginning, because we're in 1926 in Bel Air in the, in the very beginning, and Manny needs to transport an elephant to the house party of Jeff Garland's character, like this remote, not even a house party, a mansion party. And the elephant, first of all, what a way to start a movie. The elephant just poos all over Manny's partner. And not only that, just poos all over the camera. It, it, is, it is just horrifically disgusting. But it's like, you know what? One, it sets the tone of what kind of movie this is going to be. And two, it's the metaphor it? of... Yes, it does. Does it? Okay. Well, I, I disagree. Uh, no, it does, because then we get somebody peeing on a guy's face. So. Yeah, that's the, that, that is also the, 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 the tone shifts every five seconds for this film. Good, and I loved every single one of them. <laughs> the funny thing is, we, when me and Tyler went, we were, were running late because the bartender was very busy and kept walking by us without taking our money. So we finally Please got Please take out. our money. <laughs> We're going to miss Babylon. <laughs> I would have jumped over that counter, but go ahead. So we, so we finally get into the theater, and we're walking into the theater as the elephant is defecating. Um, <laughs> we sat down. We sat down, and then the elephant started defecating. Okay, true. We, we had time to sit down before the elephant started defecating. So you must have came in when the partner is like throwing hay into the back of the truck. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? And then out it comes. And, it, you know, it's it's the nice metaphor of if Manny continues to keep climbing up this Hollywood hill, he's getting pooed on. So there we go. The big party scene. This whole thing, it's bathed in this orange light. The amount of extras in this is just incredible. The fact that they had to do all those things so many times the you know this people that one guy who just said like stand there with his pants off and get paddled or whatever you know i like it's it's so incredible and it starts from above so the camera's above and then it descends in it and it's it's literally like with all this orange light and all these people acting crazy it's like are we descending into hell and then we get an answer later that you we descend into actual hell later on in the movie with Toby the music by Justin Hurwitz, it's just incredible. I like I've been listening to it so much. He's so good. And then oh yeah, also for the rest of this episode there'll there'll be some inappropriate language. Because everyone gets an entrance in this movie, right? So Manny we already know. Nelly crashes a car into a statue and again just comes out like a firecracker. Jack gets his big welcome. He comes in, everybody's around him. And Lady Faye sings My Girl's Pussy. I thought it was great. The, the smoke. Can we get smoke back in movies? Looked incredible. 
loved it. Uh, and, you know... It was a captivating performance, I will say. It, it certainly was. Like, what a character entrance. So, Nellie and Manny meet and discuss movies. And what I find f- interesting about this is that they're snorting coke, and they're talking about why they love movies, and neither of them can really say what it is they actually like about movies which I, I think goes into this like mysterious relationship that we we have with them of like why do i like this so much i know that i do but what is it about it like i'm at this party where there's coke and there's people having sex with each other why do i need this thing on a screen to make me feel something real and that that definitely plays in to the end of the movie you know, Nelly says that it's an escapist thing, and I think that goes well, right? It, it seems that she did not have a good early life. We see later that her mother is in a sanatorium. Her father is seems like an unsuccessful person. He can't really do anything but be her her manager, and everyone just seems to have hated her in life. So that answer makes sense. Manny, he says that he you can go anywhere through a movie, and that's it. He wants to go everywhere. Manny is always on the move. He's never still in the movie. I, I thought the party scene was incredible. Did you guys have any particular reaction to this? Because I was, I was jived up. I was like, if I have to watch three hours of this scene... I'm going to walk out. That was my thought. Uh, no, I'm going to side with you on this, Mike. I, I, I thought the whole scene was very escapist. Like, I felt I felt very immersed and entranced by this scene. Yeah, and it's not like I didn't want to be there or anything like that, but just like the, oh my God, like, how did they pull this off? That you, That's what it was for me. You wouldn't want to be was... there, at least, like, uh, not necessarily participating in any of the activities, but just, like, to walk around and be like, hey, wow, look at that. No, because you might get sprayed by the, the pogo stick. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, how true. Or, uh, or, or walk in on some, some girl getting peed on. No, this or some, the guy that's getting, right, some guy getting peed on. Hey, he was having a good time. It's all right. This this movie was very similar to Wolf of Wall Street, which I did not like. I never got why people like Wolf of Wall Street for the most part. So that that that's where this party scene was for me. I'm just like, okay, let's let's get to something other than this. So I'm gonna back you up on that because that's one of the reasons that I was afraid that I was not going to like this movie because I I did understand that it was a little bit more down and dirty Hollywood story and I usually do not love that kind of thing. It's usually not my favorite. What can I say? I just clicked with it. Maybe I'll just love anything Chazelle does. That that would be great. So after that, Manny takes Jack home because he's kind of drunk and passed out and that's kind of like his his entry because then he becomes Jack's trusted, let's say, assistant for... A, a period of time jack's eureka moment that was really just brad pitt you know when he's up on up above his pool talking about uh projecting images and a lonely man not feeling so lonely anymore one that was just brad pitt flexing his stardom he, he's just captivating <laughs> in that and also it was you know you realize later that that was actually a pretty intimate moment where he's really talking about himself right he's this incredibly lonely guy um who you know he does enjoy more privilege and success than anybody but he's he's very lonely and he's always trying to distract himself from the fact that his life is pretty empty 
by, by doing all these crazy things. And, you know, as time goes on, it gets less and less successful. The silent movie set scene, another one where I was just like, I like, how did they do this, man? We, we get all these different sets of all these different movies being shot. These extras, it's the most chaotic environment, screaming, music, fire. Spike Jones is the German director who's like mad every single second. <laughs> when they're like, oh, Manuel, he can deal with those extras. And he turns around and it's the crowd of like a hundred Skid Row residents. <laughs> That was hilarious, even though it's, like, obviously morally a, a terrible thing. But that was so funny. Also, when he goes to get the camera, he's racing because the last camera broke and he's got to get a new one. And what was it, like, model 2708 versus model yeah. 2709? And the the clerk guy, whoever that clerk guy was, he was great, really funny. And he calls to the guy in the back. He's like, yeah, this guy wants to know if there's a difference between the two models. And the guy's like... <laughs> I want to know who did that. I love that. Meanwhile, Nelly's becoming a star, you know, by doing these very captivating down and dirty performances in a bar scene. And what I, I really liked is that what this introduces is throughout the movie, all of a sudden we get these black and white images of certain moments right and the first the first one i think i could be wrong but i think the first one is nelly when she's on top of the bar crying because her character is like ashamed of you know being dirty or whatever and we get those black and white images later in the movie and it's like again all this crazy life happened but all that's left years later are like these artificial images, right? So what what do we do with that? What do we do with the forgotten history? What do we do with the things that are left? Thought it was great. <laughs> that guy, Tim, I think his name was, when the director's like, what's your name? And he's like, Tim? She's like, Tim, you're fired. And he's like, what? <laughs> Wait, Poor was Tim. it Margot Robbie in that scene or Samara Weaving? It was... It was well, actually, both of them, because Samara Weaving comes in the door, and Margo's on top of the bar. Jack in the tent, when all the like the props are flying and like the spear comes through the tent, he has a really funny, but like you wouldn't notice it line where he's talking to somebody on the phone, uh, and he's <laughs> he's talking about Shakespeare, and to the woman on the other end, he's like, "You would have been great in one of his fluffier plays." <laughs> it's like such. <laughs> such a dig but it's so subtle and i i love the shot of him on the hill where he's like almost so drunk that everyone is putting so forth so much effort to support him and just get him to his mark where he needs to be and this goes along with the fact that like again we we're asked to sympathize with him but it also shows that like he's an incredibly privileged guy who takes advantage of the success that he has, right? It takes a team of like 12 people to get him to stagger up a hill. And also we get the the very quick news flash later about the girl, the young woman that he was uh, having sex with at the party. You know, he, he made her think that she was something special. And then later on, she kills herself um, after he, you know, we don't know what happened between them, but assumingly he abandons him. And all of this, all these several storylines, 
they lead up to this moment where Jack and this other woman actress kiss, and Manny is just amazing. I thought that was one of the moments where Diego Calva just like nailed it as far as the expression, the the majesty of the movie, like the shock and surprise and awe that's on his face when they all land this perfect moment. I, I thought it was incredible. It's not all fun, though, because, again, it's showing, like, these depraved working conditions. A guy literally dies on set, and the producers are like, yeah, all right. Which goes to, like, it's it's not just a love letter to cinema. It's, like, a showcase of, like, look how disgusting and awful this was. You know, that kind of thing. The next scene I love, Nelly's movie premiere, like, the silent movie all in red it was it's funny because this is the second time in like what three years where margot robbie has been asked to watch her character actress's own movie in because she did it in once upon a time in hollywood Mm -hmm. i thought about that as it was happening too do you guys like her in that movie side note yeah i like that movie i like i like everything almost everything about that movie I I struggle with it a bit because I just don't think her character gets enough, especially when uh, Brad Pitt and especially DiCaprio get so much. And I, I've heard the yeah. rationalization of like, oh, she's supposed to be the symbolism of, of bright new hope and stuff. It just never really worked for me narratively. I don't think she got enough. Well, I would have liked to see more of her, sure. Um, I'm, I just want them to keep making movies with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie where you swap out the third star and it's just about a ver- another different time in Hollywood. So give me like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hmm. I want to know, I want it to take place in the mid-aughts on the rom-com Hollywood scene. <laughs> oh, God. Make, right when... have, have, making a, a, a Ooh, 2000s rom-com. No, no, not, not 2000s. That was the... There, there's some good ones. That was the the no no era. No, no, thank you. It would you it would really, make for a good movie, but that you could really get into like the down and dirty, behind the scenes culture of those two thousands rom coms. I do actually love that idea because it could show the transition between oh we got some good rom coms and then like oh what the hell are all these? So that's that's actually a fantastic idea. So thank you for that. Get Matthew McConaughey in there. Yeah. In like lose... the most meta role. <laughs> how to lose a guy in the mid-aughts romantic <laughs> comedies. Um, so that M- Nellie and Manny in New York. So the the sanatorium when she goes to visit her mom, I still can't really wrap my head around this. I didn't know if it was like a, hey, ma, look at me. I actually became something. And because her mother is having such severe mental issues, excuse me, her mother doesn't even really respond. Nellie just kind of gets blank faced. And so she she never gets the satisfaction. It's like the cruel realization that no matter how big of a success you become, people just don't care. Like people are just living their own lives and you're just kind of on your own. So I, I still can't really put my finger on exactly what that scene is. But I do like it. Um, have we reached any of the parts that you guys were were not into yet? There were. I, I just want to say there have been a lot of visiting mom at the sanatorium scenes in movies in the last couple months. 
So I was reflecting on this because I saw a movie this year, and I'm sure there were more. We definitely saw altogether some of these movies, but I saw a movie separately with each of you in which we both got up, immediately walked out, and said, I hated that. <laughs> so, Matt, I think you're referring to the one you and I saw, which was Bones and All. Yeah. And Tyler, ours was Violent Night, which did not did not have a visiting mom in the sanatorium scene. Although visiting visiting mom in her rich house when she's you know, she's something else. We do learn about Manny's family in the New York scene too, right? He never sees them. He considers it to be easier on his own. And people have kind of criticized this movie for like not giving us a ton about Manny. And I think it's a very fair criticism. But I do think later on, especially as he does some more of those unsavory things, like that blind ambition, that kind of blank slateness to him, it, it makes sense. Uh, but we'll get to that. The first sound recording with the Hello College script, <laughs> is there a more perfect scene that was put to film uh, this year? Is uh, there? Dying during that scene. That was definitely my mm-hmm. favorite scene of this film. That was probably my second favorite. My first Ooh. one's coming up. Oh, okay. I can't wait. For, I mean, it's it's perfect. The editing, the sound, the acting. Like, oh my god, doing this take over and over and over, and they keep getting interrupted, and then PJ Byrne just like flips the hell out, <laughs> and then the way the sneeze scene. Yeah. It's like, do you hear, I hear whistling. And then at the very end when they finally get it, and then like the man drops out of the booth dead. And you're like, oh, like, I, I can't. It's so good. I, I thought about how like this was such a good scene and that every they showed every take through. A lesser movie would have made the joke of like, take 25, like cut yeah. into it. And I expected them to do that multiple times, and they didn't. It just kind of brought you through each take, so you kind of felt the frustration just build up and boil over in so you real know, time. You know what's funny is I thought that they were going to do that during this. I and, did too. And yeah. then they never did. And you know what I love about this from casting is that even the guy who did the mark, that guy had personality. And he all he does is go scene twenty seven take three like that's his only line throughout the whole thing. But like even he like deteriorates, and he was an interesting guy to watch. Like that was so like I, I have you have we seen a better thing on film all year? I don't know if we have. I guess we have seen one. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. It's it's up there. It's up there. It's the up the there. pearl monologue. Okay. All right. Yes. That's, that's that's a tough one to to rank. So we do have in our upcoming Silver Screen Saver Second Annual Awards, we do have a category that is best scene. So we'll we'll talk about it more there. Best eleven minute monologue by Mia Goth. Well, if you do best eleven minute monologue, you could do Mia Goth versus Rebecca Hall, and that would be quite the fight. Uh, the hooray for party. The hooray for sound party, um, kind of after kicking off, you know, movies, pictures with sound, talkies. Again, one one snag, and I think something that was not well developed was the Nelly and Lady Faye kind of dynamic there. Um, Lady Faye takes a fancy in Nelly, 
and Nelly kind of returns the affection. They dance at this party. There seems to be something between them. It doesn't ever really get developed, and it later is just kind of used as a weapon where Manny mm-hmm. has to, you know, become this tool for bigotry and fire Lady Faye because, you know, she can't be ruining Nelly's public image. So, yeah, I did not like that that scene. Yeah. I, it, I, I mean, I know that they're... I understand that it it's using Manny as a weapon for bigotry, but it just I feel like I maybe I just wasn't picking up on it, but I f- felt like that was just kind of out of left field for his character. I don't, and we'll get there. My argument is I think he was just he would do anything. One, he would do anything. And two, although he was rising in the ranks, I don't think he had the power. And this is not a defense. Um, I say it more as an indictment of higher powers. I don't think he had the power to say no and to stay in his position. I think he just had to do whatever they told him. Which, again, is not a defense of his actions, um, but it is kind of an assimilatory thing. Hmm. So Nelly overhearing in the bathroom that she sucks, again, I it's like this this worst nightmare coming true for her of people just still think she sucks that's the whole thing that she's been worried about her whole life and here she is she's like at the top of the mountain in hollywood she is an it girl she's a star and she's people are just you know telling her she sucks it's like a hard truth of like you can be the biggest success in the world there are some people who are always going to hate you uh, also a similar technique as in La La Land because the same thing happens to Mia in La La Land. So after this, p- part of people's gripe with her is that her dad's super embarrassing. He has these really stupid ideas and he keeps telling this story about how he fought a snake. And so she tells him and everybody else that he's going to fight a snake. They drive out to the desert Eric Roberts is fantastic. I've always loved Eric Roberts so much. If you guys ever want to see an excellent Eric Roberts and you do, watch Final Analysis and have the most fun of your life. While we're still talking about this this scene, I just want to say we are we I believe we are now allowed to sue the production because the trailer made us think that she was going to fight the snake in that scene. But she says that her dad is going to fight the snake. She so does. I, we were she misled. She also ends up fighting the snake. We we were grossly misled. They said Anna de Armas was going to be in this movie. No, I was just going to say, they did not <laughs> trick us into believing that de Armas. De Armas would have probably been better off being in this movie than the movie that she was in, unfortunately. But uh, So they go to fight the snake in the desert. And it's just like this extreme moment where... It's tough to tell if Nelly is hoping that her dad will actually fight the snake, but I think it's more so that I think she's hoping that her father will die and so that he doesn't have to embarrass her anymore, which is just like this incredible desperation. Did you guys get any other impression besides that? That's kind of what I picked up. Yeah, and she's she's like hoping that this thing will bite him, uh, and then it doesn't. He just falls over. Even when he's babbling, I'm like... Eric, you're doing it again, buddy. It's so good. <laughs> so when she's like, who's going to fight the snake? And like there are all those buff guys around. I didn't catch this until the second time. But this is like a rattle, you know, a deadly rattlesnake. 
<laughs> and she's like, who's going to fight it? And one guy just whispers like, I'm allergic. <laughs> <laughs> so she fights it. Uh, and she gets bitten on the neck. Her chasing everyone around with a snake still in her neck. And like her chasing George when he's got like the toilet seat over his head. That was hilarious. Loved it. And then Jack getting hit by the car. And then the scene ends. Nellie and Lady Faye kiss, which again, this like, okay, what's going on here? But that pretty much leads us into soon after when Manny becomes a producer and he's put in charge of recapturing, really rebranding Nellie's image. And that starts with firing Lady Faye. There's like some tabloid paper where Nellie and Lady Faye are seen holding hands and that is that is no good for Nellie's image, so uh, Manny has to fire her. And it was like the same uh, kind of lighting and the same shade of green that is in this, the fight scene of La La Land. So interesting motif there. Soon afterward, Matt, are we at your favorite scene yet? No, no. Oh, okay. All I'm right, surprised Matt. you haven't. I'm surprised you don't have an idea what my favorite scene is. I'm trying already. not to guess because I'm really excited to find out. I'm assuming it's not the scene where George dies and Jack no. gives a raging defense of the movies. So he has his his current wife, Catherine Watterson, is a theater actress. And he's doing some lines. She's critiquing him. He learns that George dies. He's devastated because George was like his only true friend. He was the first one who believed in his talent. And he just goes off about how the theater is just for rich intellectuals and that the movies are for the people, which I thought was very beautiful in the moment. There's a bit of irony, because um, he says rich geriatrics going to the theater, and I don't know about you guys, but both times when I saw this movie, it was pretty much just geriatrics in this theater. <laughs> what was uh, your crowd w- like? Our crowd was one young couple. Yep. You? In the way back. Probably not. <laughs> Aside from us, they were probably doing some things, you know. <laughs> they were alone in the very back of a theater. I mean, yeah. it, you know, there was an orgy scene. It, of all the happens. Yeah, of all the movies to be doing stuff in, I feel like this would be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, you got three hours, so you got plenty of time for all sorts of stuff. You got a lot of time. <laughs> no, not one second is wasted. But, I mean, it... I mean, it it was less awkward than me and the one other guy that were in the theater for She Said. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I So, when I saw it the first time, there was like one other elderly gentleman who was sitting in my row. What, She and Said? I'm, no, in, in Babylon. Oh. And I may have mentioned this before, but like, again, this is a three-hour movie. Every five minutes or less than, he had... I'm like, are you serious? I'm sorry. Like, I want this movie to make money. If you're gonna clear your throat every thirty seconds, like, stay home. I'm I'm sorry. There's so many at home options. This is ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh, but I also figured, like, oh, that's probably me in in forty years. So whatever. Maybe he just had a popcorn kernel stuck in his throat. For three hours? <laughs> yeah. Mm, maybe. <laughs> They're tough. They, they I, stick. I would have been willing to give him the Heimlich if, if it had meant that I would not have to listen to that for that whole time. 
regardless, still that's the power of Babylon. Still loved it. The high class party when Nelly is being rebranded. This is not my favorite scene in the movie, but I do like how it's kind of a turning point for all the characters, right? It's kind of representative of the changing morals of LA high class society or whatever. We have Sydney being like really patronized, harassed um, about his new role in the movies. We get Nelly, who's, you know, again, it's Nelly. She makes the comment earlier, excuse me, in the movie that no one's going to tell her how to do it. She's going to do it her way. And once she has to put on this this accent, she has to change her speech, her clothes, the way she acts, and then she just she goes crazy, right? Jack learns that his newest movie is a flop and that he might not get another chance. Uh, so good turning point. I re- I like the little touch of Nelly didn't know how to eat like that little celery um, with whatever I don't know whatever that was in it, something with cumin or something like that. I don't know. Um, How'd you guys like the vomit in this scene? Uh, it got a very home team. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was very That was just team. goofy as hell. Like, it was so out of place, like the elephant crapping. Well, there's all. So there's the elephant crapping. There's peeing on a guy's face. There's yeah. And the vomit. Fo- <laughs> there's people having sex just in the middle of a party. And then there's, there's the joke of the. Oh, do you think people really want sound in their movies? And then a guy's taking a gigantic crap in oh, the public yeah, bathroom. True, I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, I, 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 what I do think this movie does well, and it does so well with this party scene, is just kind of everything about Hollywood is fake. Like, it's all, it's all a facade kind yeah. of thing. Like, especially Manny. Manny becomes successful on something that's not even his idea. It was Sydney's idea yeah. in the first place to show him. And then he's just kind of becomes this guy who, like, craps all over the, like, the people that are the stars because, you yeah. know, like, it's not actually about them. Um, and then at this party, like, this high-class party where Jeff Garland's like, I hope she looks high-class. He was literally having a party at his house that was an orgy with coke and stuff, and they're like... <laughs> exactly. It's the total hypocrisy. It, you, you you make an excellent point. It was Jeff Garland. He had the party at his house. <laughs> yeah, it was It was Jeff. He was playing yeah. two roles. I, I forgot what Jeff his name Garland. was. <laughs> I'm just using Jeff Garland. That, that sounds like something Jeff Garland would do, though. Yeah, so we get then we get an interview from with Jack and he's talking about this is when he's really on a downward turn and he's talking about his new movies how they're not doing so well but he's going to he's going to rise again. And there's this moment where the interviewer asks him, "Do you miss the silent films? Do you miss the silence?" And he like pauses. And I really love that moment because before he was always about stopping progress, right? And he's like, oh, I don't want to stop progress. But like once he's left behind, there's a wistfulness for the way that things used to be, right? He, I guess he never thought or he didn't want to think that he was never going to be at the forefront of where cinema was going. And so once it's passed him by and you never really know the end is coming before it gets there, then there is this nostalgia and this real yearning for the way that things used to be so great little moment there uh, we get a similar moment to the lady Faye situation where sydney is playing his trumpet in a movie and manny is asked by another producer to 
force Sydney to wear skin darkening makeup uh, because his skin needs to match the tone of the other black players so that they can show it in the South so it'll be palatable to the very racist audience. And, you know, it, it was, again, it was Manny being used as a tool of racism, right? It's He was so determined to get to the top and the power structure was just so awful. Sydney was put in this incredibly demoralizing position and we see that he's out. He never wants to deal with it again, which I think, again, Giovanni Depo did an excellent job, but there's there's just something missing from Sydney's story. Again, it's like, I didn't want his whole thing to be about, oh, this is an example of the consequence of Hollywood racism. I wanted something a little bit more about his personal life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that would have been really nice. Next we get to, this is where I would say there's a big tonal shift in mm-hmm. the movie. Where yes. Nellie goes into debt. She shows up at Manny's house. We know, and again, an, more evidence that she is lonely is that, again, she's at the top of the Hollywood world, but she spends all her time and all, you know, this major gambling, drugs, drinking, all this kind of stuff. So she's in big debt. Manny's going to bail her out because, again, he's had this attachment to her all these years. And they go to the. Well, this kind of like opiate den, I would say. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this one, this this was my favorite scene. This is your favorite. <laughs> so the count was such an odd character that we haven't mentioned this point. I was just gonna say, so Rory Scovel, who's really great, plays the count, who's like an onset dealer, medicine man for the performers. I love the moment in the sound scene when Nellie's freaking out because it's like the ninth take and she's like, Count, come here. And he's like, just next time it's the Count. And she's like, this is not the fucking time. (laughs) That was really funny. He's great. And I love the fact that he was selling, he was dealing his drugs inside of peanut shells. That was really funny. That first shot of them breaking open the shell and it's the, the pill or whatever. Yeah, so when they get... And they reveal Toby Maguire. I again was just bowing down to Damien Chazelle and said, "Thank you, thank you." He's got this like he's he's a vampire. He's got this pale skin. His eyes look terrible. He's so unnerving. He's got this like really disgusting ideas for movies. <laughs> oh my god, his movie ideas. And I'm going to ask you guys, because I did not get this the first time. When they had that whole conversation about prop money, I thought that they just meant that it, like, literally, that he, he like, stole it from the prop budget. That he was siphoning money from the movie. Oh, no, no. As I got it, it was, like, prop movie money. That's what I took from it. Oh, no, I fell for it. I thought he meant, I thought he, I thought what you thought, too, Mike. I thought that he stole it from the prop department and then when it clicked i'm like oh yes which in a way almost kind of made it better were they supposed to do that because i just thought it was no i don't think so i think oh okay so if they had used the word like fake even one time then i think we would have gotten it but they just kept saying it's prop money which i kept thinking as money for props but you know it's no I, I, i had that same reaction 
Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, earlier when I said the party felt like we were descending into hell, well, we actually descend <laughs> into hell. We get like this horribly, incredibly. Uh, Toby takes them to like this underground. I what? What would you even call it? Like dungeon of hellish entertainment. The first floor is like these two women beating the the holy life out of each other, and they keep like descending floors. It really is like the circles of hell. In the uh, not in the second floor, which had like the weird chimpanzees go moo song or whatever. <laughs> you know what i'm talking about the like was, the red room it was it was like going down the chocolate river and the willy wonka boat right that red room movie. was even more intense than the red room in 50 shades of gray yeah <laughs> and then i don't know if you guys noticed but like in the scene where everyone's in the cages on like the third floor down a version of my girl's pussy was playing was it oh yeah, I, didn't miss, I missed it um that was good. And then we get some, but before we get to the final, final level, were you guys afraid of the amphibious creature that came out of the water? I, it, it was a good jump scare, I will say. It really was. And it just added to the whole wild it, thing. And it, yeah, it's just, it, this felt like a mini movie within a movie, honestly, yes. this whole sequence. So many of these scenes did. And so honestly, I think. It. Those are a lot, all the different sequences that kind of feel like movies within a different movie. I didn't. I mean, the tonal shift. I could see that being a bit grating. Yeah. But I, I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of cool. I almost feel like, in in another timeline, this could have almost been worth fleshing out more to a point where it almost made it was made into a television series rather no. than no a film. It probably See, would have it probably would have done better budget wise. So here's what I'm gonna say is that in all practicality, you make such a fantastic point, and it's really smart. In the spirit of this movie, no, never, <laughs> never. I can't do it. I can't green light it. But I understand completely <laughs> or, what you're or saying. Or even like, no, I was gonna say maybe just do like an anthology film series of like short films on like oh okay. or shorter length stuff kind of like that blumhouse hulu thing oh i know what you mean you know what i mean oh uh, yeah i so i always tell myself that i'm gonna watch those and then there's like 26 of them and i'm like i feel like these are all mediocre <laughs> <laughs> i i've only seen a couple pilgrim is the standout for me not because it's the particularly good but just because it's a thanksgiving horror movie you know, yeah. we don't get too many of those. I know anyway, that's mean. that's a digression. So, <laughs> no, it's a perfect segue because then we get to the geek who is like the most muscular man that's ever existed. <laughs> so, I just want to go through my thought process of this whole scene. Okay, so do it. So, I thought from the beginning it was prop money. So, I thought the Count, not the Count, um, Toby McGuire McKay, I thought he knew that it was fake money. So, like, I thought he was leading them into, like, a trap, but when he just, like, this, this like, he was legitimately just talking about this guy, I was trying, I was, like, laughing so hard. Oh, that, like, and that, just, that, 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 like, what the fuck? Yes, his, <laughs> his, line the, delivery. The, the whole, mo the whole movie, the whole moment there, Tobey Maguire is perfect in that. But when he, when he, when he has the money in the waterfalls, and he's like, it's fake. Yeah. <laughs> like, so calmly. 
<laughs> yeah, it was, especially af- after he was just like, eat another rat. <laughs> <laughs> that whole scene has dying. But like, I like the just the the fact that his ridiculous screenplay idea was actually just to have this man be in a movie. <laughs> You know, you know what would have been the perfect cameo is if they had had Brad Cooper be the muscular man. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, because because Nightmare Alley, he was he became the geek. geek in Nightmare Alley. Oh, he did become the geek. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what if they had just like photoshopped his head onto that guy's body, like they did in Black Adam? <laughs> Yeah, just like, just like crude CGI his face onto this guy. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. That would have made the movie even better. <laughs> so what's crazy is that uh, Manny has to like kill a guy in this yeah. scene. Yeah, he just stabs him in the throat with like an axe. That like medieval weapon. A mace. Yeah, yeah. A mace. got him in the neck with a mace. Yeah, a mace. That's what it was. And then they run out. He releases the alligator. That like I. Wow, that whole thing was so good. So good. <laughs> Loved it. And then we get... So we move from, like, the biggest... Maybe not the biggest. Maybe, like, one of the two biggest things in the movie. So probably the most intimate, where Jack is not even being responded to by, like... So interesting thing in this movie is that it's, like, a mix of fake characters and then real characters, like Irving Thalberg... Um, Jack is not getting responded to by Mr. Thalberg, by anybody. So, and he sees an article about how his career is over from Eleanor, who is the journalist. And he goes to see her. And Gene Smart just like nails this speech so much about wow. how Jack is done. He had his time in the spotlight. Because the whole thing was never about him or her or anybody. It just exists on its own. And people will come before, people will come after. But the only thing to take solace in is that his image will remain immortal for life. The first thing that she says is that there's no reason why his newest movie didn't work. I have to disagree with her a bit. Uh, Jack Conrad was not the most talented on-screen talking actor that I have ever seen. <laughs> the, the like little movie clip they showed, I'm like, yeah, that that was not a fantastic scene. Still, I'm, I don't think an audience would erupt at that. Yeah, <laughs> the no. guy's like, Pfft. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, it wasn't that bad, but I'm no. like, eh, maybe maybe that wasn't the best scene he's ever shot. Um, but yeah, it's it's about destroying ego there will be plenty like him but the essence of what he did will remain right and it's it's again it's like the art is going to remain and this question of is he willing to accept a brief glamorous life knowing that he may not get to experience it but people will be loving what he did forever and ever or you know until society collapses or whatever I, I just like that was such a, a really tender speech. She she delivered it so perfectly, and then at the end, Pitt, Pitt plays it very quietly, and then he just goes, "Thank you for that," and he walks out. And that's kind of you know, Jack has one or two more scenes after that, but that's really just kind of like closing the book on on Jack Conrad. Uh, because yeah, the next scene is 
or his next scene is when he has one final conversation with Lady Faye and then he commits suicide in the bathroom. So I heard this from a lot of people that they just found this to be very obvious and predictable. You guys agree with that? Absolutely. I called it as soon as he walked up the stairs. It's like, oh, he's going to shoot himself. I mean, that was a, I think that's a reasonable time to start thinking that way. But are you saying people predicted it sooner than that? I don't know if they predicted it sooner than that. It just seemed to be like a common complaint of like that was too predictable. It was very predictable. I mean, I don't know what else they could have necessarily done with it. Right. I don't. So I'm not going to defend like suicide in film or anything like that. No. But but. it just would have been like, well, where are they really like going to now go through like Jack drinking himself to death? Or like, what what would be next for Jack Conrad? No, but they clearly wanted to build suspense by having him be in the room and the, the camera outside the door, and then he crosses the threshold with the gun. I mean, we all to, knew it was coming. I mean, you didn't me, have to have ten minutes of that. I mean, to me, I, I agree, and I think that's part of where it could have been cut down a little bit. But at the same time, the act, the actual action of it, I think it may have been predictable, but it was still powerful. It didn't affect the weight of what happened to me. Or what happened for, you know, the weight of what happened for me. Yeah, Matt, I think you said it perfectly. I, I, I agree with both of you. I, you know, it's, you knew it was going to happen. Um, it didn't make, yeah, it didn't make it less effective for me. So you, you said it well. And even at his funeral, you see the producers, even as he's being buried, they're just talking about what comes next. So it just mm-hmm. went to what Eleanor said of like, the world will move on without you. Um, but it, it gets to that whole speech gets to you know not not to get too like existential but like i think that is one of kind of the motivating purposes behind art a lot of the time is that we're all looking for a way to be immortalized we want some piece of us to remain after our physical bodies are gone and i i think that is not the only reason there are plenty of other reasons but uh one one urge to create is that's part of the motivation behind it and this film got it that i thought so well so i was very impressed with that manny and nelly running away and they're they kind of end up on like that dance floor and again we get another one of the black and white images of them dancing happily when they like get you know fake engaged or whatever and again the black and white image is like this perfect thing but there was so much more going on beyond that I thought the movie, I will say this, this movie has about 57 different endings, and Mm -hmm. I thought that this was one of them. Mm -hmm. Not that I minded it. So another ending that I thought was her disappearing into the darkness after Manny goes inside of the Count's apartment, and she just kind of walks off into the darkness. I wasn't quite sure the first time how to interpret that, but... And maybe this is a little too simplistic. I don't know. But I think maybe after her and Manny get engaged, they seem to be very happy. And again, I think she just kind of turns to Manny because he's her last resort. I don't know if she was like ever actually in love with Manny. I think he was just kind of the one who was always there for her. Do you think it was sort of like a like a The Graduate situation? It could be a The Graduate. Yeah, that's that's a good comparison. It certainly could be. 
And I think that in that moment when they're engaged and they act like everything's going to be fine, right? Often the best moments are the most hopeful moments. And I think that was maybe she knew that that was as high as she was ever going to get. And so she just bailed, right? I don't think it's actually going to go as well as this ever again. Mm. So I'm out. Maybe. Yeah. I, thought it was more of a like i'm not like good for him kind of thing like like she realizes like she like because she said like i'm not i'm no good for you whatever and all that and i think she just kind of like left him alone like this can't work out well so i'm gonna leave him that's the best thing for him kind of thing i like that interpretation i like that um again we we do get the news flash later and very quickly that she died at like 34 years old or whatever so she i i wasn't sure how soon after um that scene the walking away scene that she actually died so I, you know i don't know if it was immediately if it was a little bit later uh so i, I was always curious about that i think they say in her hotel room so sometime. Oh, okay did you guys believe that that one of toby's guys let manny go because my my dad my dad had an issue with that i i don't know i thought it was fine i thought it was bizarre that they found him like but that poor roommate just like eating some oatmeal or whatever it's like pulp fiction well kind of yeah but like well not to well i won't spoil pulp fiction um (laughs) Another, another good movie. So the ending. So years later, Jack is dead. Nelly is dead. Everybody's pretty much moved on. We get a little bit of an older man. He's got a wife and a young daughter. He owns a radio shop in New York. He goes, visits L.A., his old studio, and he's walking around the streets, and he goes into a movie house, and he watches Singing in the Rain. So what happens is... You think like, oh, he's going to watch Singing in the Rain. He's going to get wistful. He's going to get nostalgic. And he's going to smile and then it's going to be over. And then Damien Chazelle said, mm, just kidding. I'm going to go crazy with this motherfucker. And then he, it just it goes off. It's the one of the wildest thing. So it mixes in actual footage of Singing in the Rain. This is in 1952, I believe. And it goes back to those old images, the black and white. So like, you know, Nellie perfectly crying, Manny and Nellie perfectly dancing. And then it mixes in with the, you know, in the reality of the movie, the real footage of the colorful, vibrant, very depraved life surrounding it. And then it's it just it's going through all of cinema history for the past hundred years. It, Two James Cameron comments. <laughs> yeah, it he, had the horse from Nope. It did the, have the, the Hayward well, Hollywood horse. Well, it had the the Hayward the, the actual great, clip, great, the great, actual yeah, clip. great grandfather. Yeah, but was used in Nope. Yeah, and yeah. and then it's just like color, film dyes, this history, and just then just like these solid colors on a screen, and you know it's. If we didn't have all that stuff, I'd be like, oh, Manny was wistful. He's nostalgic. (laughs) 
but I think there's so much in his face. I think Kalva, he did so well in that in that moment because there is the wistfulness, there is the appreciation, the nostalgia, the missing of what he used to have, but it's also this question of there was so much life and just wildness that went into making these things, and I think he's questioning, like, is this all that's left? Is these two hours of singing in the rain, is this what is left? Is this why I'm going so crazy, why my heart is getting being tugged? because of these colors on a screen is this is is this what's doing it i know that it is but why 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 and i don't know if it's ever answered what what was your guys reaction to that that craziness i don't think i could have said it better than that were you so i'll ask this were you like all right enough be done or were you like let's see where this goes i i was interested i was uh, and and on second thought, I mean, there was a, a lot more that I liked about this movie than I didn't. Hmm. Um, and I I was I was curious. It was I was a little fatigued because it was past the three hour mark at that point. But Tyler, how did you react? I was like, "That's my boys, the Navi. Those are my boys." <laughs> okay, go go to Pandora. <laughs> Become Navi. Yeah. You eat Navi. You speak Navi. So I, and then I was also like, I know this is not literal, but I'm like, is this a goodbye to movies? Is is, is this like we're done? Because <laughs> it was literally like, let me pack everything that's ever happened into this. The most like built up emotional thing that I can possibly do, and then we're just gonna be out. Should and I'm we, like, wow. You're making me think, should we should someone check on Damien? Make sure he's okay? I, I, <laughs> Damien, I like what is going on? It's it oh my god. It was wild. It was daring. I, I loved it so much. Cause again, it could have just been that very and this is not a pedestrian movie at all, but it could have ended with that pedestrian you know, oh, singing in the rain. Well, I remember when, you know, Jack was singing that. I remember when I was with Nelly. But it doesn't. It, it's, it just goes off the wall, and it gets so much even bigger, 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 bigger. I just, I loved it. And I'm, like, I'm still unpacking it. And that's one of the things that I love most about this movie is that it just filled up my brain with so many things to unpack that, you know, I... And there's no definite answer. You can just kind of just keep chewing on the intellectual popcorn here. So that's one of the reasons why I love Babylon. Interestingly enough, about 10 years ago, I think it was at the 2012 Oscars. Forgive me if I'm getting that incorrectly. That was um, 10 years ago? What are you talking about? It was. Uh. So, so do you guys know what movie won the oscar then and i'm gonna double check the date while you guess it wasn't avatar 2 it certainly was not the 2012 oscar so a movie from the movie 2012 (laughs) won the oscar no it did not (laughs) roland emmerich roland emmerich moonfall (laughs) roland emmerich was not best picture at the 2012 oscars nobody directed the best picture 2012 Interestingly enough, I never even saw that. Or was it no? No, that wasn't 2012. 
you guys think we'll ever do a Roland Emmerich episode one day? Maybe. Maybe when Moonfall 2 comes out. Yeah. We, we, we better yeah. get through every other director, writer, and producer before we do that. <laughs> every key grip before we do that. Uh, so the best picture that year was also about the transition between silent films to sound. This was black and white. It was a, it was an actual silent film. The artist, you guys remember that? I never. I just vaguely remember it. So I, I I have seen that movie. That movie is much more uh, palatable than Babylon is. Then again, most most movies are. But I, I found that very interesting because ten years ago we got a movie on this exact concept. And wouldn't it be funny if ten years later? another movie wins best picture yeah i don't think babylon's winning best picture sorry mike i don't think so either um but if it did happen i'd be good i mean don't look up got nominated and that was the worst movie anyone's ever made so you know you never know oh my god stop exaggerating just stop it (laughs) the worst movie ever the worst movie ever you're gonna look at the winner what was the winner that be true I mean that's a better right. movie than that's a better movie than Don't Look Up. No, it's not. All right, but so I, I gotta side with Tyler on that one. No, no, I, you know that I will say I am being whiny because Coda won Best Picture. I also watched that movie twice and felt nothing for it. But we're here to talk about Babylon. At, My, at, at least it'll never be the most controversial thing to happen at that Oscars. <laughs> that's yeah. That well. <laughs> This is true. Also won't be the most exciting. Uh, one final question. Where do you guys want Chazelle to go from here? I know uh, you guys are not the biggest fans, but I you might surprise be surprised to hear me say, I want him to step away from Hollywood. I want him to take his just brilliant filmmaking and storytelling and apply it somewhere else, some other sector of life. Step away from the hills. What do you guys think? I want to see him make a Marvel movie. No, never. For the, lo- <laughs> for the love of God, do not do it. Don't do it. I want to see him make a sequel to Coda. <laughs> oh, God, I don't know what's worse. <laughs> Coda 2 by Damien Chazelle or martin freeman and julia louis dreyfus they're, they're <laughs> that that could be a romantic comedy from the mid-2000s that's gonna be the sequel to coda it's gonna be an mcu film about the child of julia louis dreyfus and martin freeman's character yeah i i, I want to see chazelle step away from hollywood i think he's supremely talented i mean i'm i want him to make a new movie tomorrow at the same time i've been so obsessed with this one I'm good for a while. I I'm very very satisfied. So thank you, thank you. What if he and, What if he writes a theater play? Wouldn't that Would that go against the what he, the whole thing he tried to say in this movie? Why would that go against it? Or or maybe not what he's trying to say, but what Jack said. Oh, about the theater versus yeah, maybe. Um, he did direct an episode or maybe like a few of a of a show, uh, the Eddie. It's like a French-American show. Haven't watched it. But I, he can do whatever he wants. It's cool with me. 
All right. Well, for those of you who have made it this far with us, one, thank you. And two, if you have any thoughts or you want to see Babylon, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreensaversPod. You can write to us at SilverScreensaversPod at gmail.com. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your platform is. And our Facebook is Silver Screen Savers Podcast. Matt, where can you be found online? You can find me at MattyXSturds, S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And be on the lookout for my petition to sue the producers of Babylon for their misleading trailer. They don't have any money, so so don't sue them. (laughs) Tyler, Tyler, what about you? One second. If we're going to sue for misleading trailers, A24, you better watch out. You don't have any budget left. um, You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sipkis and on Letterboxd at Tyler96. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Michael underscore Gallat and on Letterboxd at MGallat. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Stay down to bone. Silver Screen Savers podcast is hosted and produced by Michael Gallett, Tyler Sukkis, and Matt Sturdivant, with additional editing by Matt Sturdivant, intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay, logo designed by Nathan Seidel.